Editor on the Middle East, our Monitor's podcast on the big stories in the region. Things have been heating up since Hamas's October 7 attack on Israel, and no more so than yesterday, when Iran-backed Shia militias killed three U.S. servicemen at a base in Jordan close to the Syrian border. President Joe Biden has vowed to retaliate as he faces mounting pressure from his Republican foes. They say his weak response to sustained attacks by the Iran-backed militias has emboldened them to kill American forces for the first time. With U.S. presidential elections just 10 months away, what are Iran's calculations? And can the Biden administration risk getting bogged down in yet another endless Middle Eastern war? Is Iran directly responsible for the attacks on U.S. forces, or are these Shia militias using their own initiative? And how much of this really has to do with the conflict in Gaza? With us here today to discuss these questions are two leading experts on Iran and Shia militias. Inna Rudolph is a senior research fellow at the Center for the Study of Radicalization, and she's also a research fellow at King's College London, where she focuses on cross-border conflicts. Hamid Reza Azizi is a visiting fellow at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin, who closely follows Iranian policy in the Caucasus and the Middle East. Welcome to our program, Hamid Reza. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you again. So I'll get straight to the point. Is Iran behind these attacks? It's, I think, as difficult uh, a question to answer as uh, the very famous question of whether Iran was behind the Hamas's uh, October 7 attack on Israel. Because, uh, you know, as I argued on that case, I would say the same thing about uh, the recent attack that, uh, you know, in a way Iran is and is not behind the attacks because, you know, uh, Iran is the main supporter of these groups. And, uh, you know, regardless of the level, level of agency that uh, some of the Iraqi militias enjoy, and that's a different matter, we can get into that later. Uh, regardless of that, these groups used to be Iranian proxies for some time, especially in the period between 2003 and the uh, first U.S. withdrawal from uh, Iraq in uh, 2011. And they continue to rely on Iran for, uh, you know, logistical uh, weapons support, intelligence support, all these sorts of things. Uh, but then, uh, you know, based on my understanding of Iran's strategic thinking and the very fact that I still don't see any sign indicating that Iran wants to escalate against the United States in the way that it would, uh, you know, lead to a direct confrontation and bring the war to Iran. I think that, uh, you know, the, uh, the the latest attack was either a kind of miscalculation in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, those organizing it didn't expect the uh, killing of uh, the uh, U.S. soldiers or uh, the other option, which, which seems uh, more uh, probable to me, uh, would be that, uh, you know, it is an act by uh, the Iraqi groups to take revenge for the recent killings of their commanders and, and comrades. Uh, over the past few weeks by the United States. Well, you say that Iran is maybe not telling them to take uh, um, to carry out these actions, but at the same time, Iran is probably in a position to tell them to rein in such actions, to stop doing this, 
you know, if only because it doesn't want to draw the United States into a, you know, direct confrontation with itself. So why isn't Iran doing that? They surely have that kind of leverage. That's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, foreign in the past that uh, Iran did actually ask them to to rein in. And then basically it happened, you know, in September, last September, after the so-called unwritten understanding between Iran and the United States, part of which uh, was said to be uh, kind of uh, Iran uh, trying to de-escalate with the United States in Iraq and Syria, we uh, witnessed uh, considerable decrease, uh, I mean, uh, technically halt of uh, the attacks against uh, the U.S. positions in Iraq and Syria. Uh, but then, you know, like it or not, it has mainly to do with the uh, overall situation in and around Gaza. And uh, the very fact that, uh, you know, all these groups, I mean, there was a decision at the highest level in this network of so-called access of resistance by Iran and its, of course, uh, partners and proxies uh, to escalate in the sense that, you know, they would increase the pressure on the United States uh, so that uh, the U.S. would uh, kind of uh, try to uh, limit the scope of the war and push the, push, push the Israelis toward, uh, you know, uh, halting the war. So when, when there is a, a decision uh, to escalate overall, then, uh, you know, things like uh, what happened yesterday uh, would be only a matter of time. So there was the risk from day one. Uh, when the tensions escalated and tit for tat attacks between Iran, uh, Iran-backed militias and the United States, that this would, uh, this this might happen, and uh, you know, then uh, a, a huge escalation would come as a result, and this might be something that we are uh, already witnessing uh, uh, in, on this day, basically. Look, I'm not an Iran expert. You know a lot more about all of this than I do. But let's not forget that these attacks by Iran-backed Shia militias on U.S. forces in Iraq and Syria predate October 7. And in some ways, it's hugely convenient for these groups, for Iran, to use October 7th as a pretext to escalate when, in fact, their real target is to get U.S. forces out of Iraq out of Syria. And if it's a matter of avenging their comrades who were killed by the US, just hours after three US um, security forces members were killed in Jordan, you saw another attack on Shadadi base in northeast Syria by the same groups. So this is more than just avenging deaths. There's obviously a strategy to pressure the United States to leave the region and taking it to the brink, really. There's a game of brins brinksmanship ongoing here, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And don't uh, take me wrong. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, uh, the, the confrontation between these groups and the United States or Iran and the U.S. in the region started uh, since October 7. I mean, uh, we can uh, go back and uh, look at different turning points, which, uh, you know, kind of resulted in the escalation or de-escalation of the tensions. As I mentioned, for example, there was an escalation already. Uh, and then as a result of the uh, kind of agreement between Iran and the United States, you know, things started to de-escalate. So what I'm saying basically is that the current phase is a result of uh, the increased tensions all over the region since October 7th. So this is one thing. Another thing, as you mentioned uh, quite correctly, uh, the overall intention of the uh, Islamic Republic and its allies to, uh, you know, uh, so-called uh, expel uh, the United States uh, from the region. Of course, it happened uh, uh, specifically speaking since the assassination of Soleimani in uh, 2020. And that was 
I mean, that is the official line of policy that was uh, declared even uh, by the Supreme Leader. So, of course, they do whatever they can. But, you know, the thing is that they're having fluctuations and changes in the way that they have been pursuing this objective, you know, uh, uh, for some time. I mean, they started, of course, by escalating tensions. Then at the end of the Trump era, because of the risk of a war, uh, I mean, more or less the same situation that we are right now. Uh, they decided to de-escalate for some time. Then they did again, um, and and the uh, you know failure to revive the JCPOA also uh, you know played a role in that. Uh, and uh, you know in the next stage they decided to go politically. Basically, you know Iran tried to use the leverage that it had gained as a result of you know uh, a kind of uh, government in Iraq close to itself. I mean the Sudani government and the. Uh, uh, Shia coordination framework factions being in the government to push politically for the uh, withdrawal of the United States. But, you know, the thing is that all these factors are quite intertwined, especially in the context of the war in Gaza. And let's not forget that from the Islamic Republic perspective, the war in Gaza is also about the future of the regional order, you know, and uh, what they perceive as the final atoms by the United States uh, to shape the region in its own image and uh, based on its own interests and uh, the desire on, on the Iran side to, to resist. And that's uh, where the uh, word resistance basically comes from in their own literature. Uh, so yeah, these two things are, are, are quite connected. But as I said, you know, because of the delicacy of the current situation um, and uh, the uh, high probability of, of a direct war because, you know, that's the red line for Iran. Iran doesn't want the country to be dragged into the war. It's a gradual policy to increase the pressure on the United States and then, you know, in the end for the U.S. to leave the region. That's uh, different than, uh, I mean, that cannot be achieved by killing like uh, three American soldiers. That's how I see it. Well, I mean, let's not forget that once American blood is spilled, the United States has to react it has to react to maintain deterrence. It has to react because of domestic pressure, because of the elections that are coming up in the United States. And surely Iran and its allies know that. So I'm still trying to understand what the point is. I mean, if on the one hand, this is all about trying to get the US out of the region, it may have the exact opposite effect of bringing the United States back much more forcefully into the region. It could, you know, go either way. Uh, look, that's exactly why I said uh, killing of the American soldiers, uh, at least to me, doesn't seem to be part of the plan. The plan has been to uh, increase the pressure on all these fronts, from the Red Sea and Yemen uh, to Iraq to, uh, to Lebanon, on the United States and its allies. So it doesn't fit into the context. Uh, and that's exactly why I said that the the second possibility, like uh, this this specific incident being uh, a kind of re uh, revenge taking by by the Iraqis, seems uh, more plausible to me. Especially when you put it in the context of increasing grievances on the side of Iraqi militias, uh, of, uh, you know, with regard to vis-a-vis -vis Iran, uh, saying that basically. I mean, especially with those more hardline groups in Iraq, like Qatar, Hezbollah, like Assad, Abdul Haq, like even Harakat uh, uh, al-Nujaba, which is kind of closer to Iran, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, the Iraqis are getting killed. There's a very good article by Ambaj Media actually published uh, a few uh, weeks ago on that, uh, explaining the, the, the scene. Uh, so that was quite uh, expectable and a very 
important uh, statement which was overlooked was uh, right uh, a few days ago by the head of Qatar, Sayyid al-Shahada, uh, who said after uh, the recent uh, uh, wave of U.S. attacks uh, killing some uh, members of, of the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces, saying that now after these incidents, we have entered into the second phase of our confrontation uh, with the United States. So, you know, it very much seems like the accumulation, I mean, the escalation on the Iraqi side and the increasing urge to show that we are not just sitting idly by, and by the way, uh, to say that we are not the Iranian proxies, we do what we do. Faisal Khazali had an interview after the killing of Soleimani, I'm talking about three, uh, three and a half years ago with BBC, in which he very interestingly, I mean, criticized uh, Iran's lack of uh, strong response to the killing of Soleimani, saying that uh, Iran does what it does. We will take the revenge of Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis uh, ourselves. So these, these things show uh, how delicate the whole thing is and, uh, you know, the, the importance of not uh, kind of simplifying things in the sense that, you know, these are just the puppets uh, like uh, run by Iran and uh, things like that, which we usually see in the uh, kind of uh, discussion on, on uh, yes, social media. Course, and media. I, I agree yeah. it's reductionist and it also uh, sort of uh, kind of ignores the realities of Iran, where you have dif different uh, centers of power that are sometimes in competition, even. And so the you could perhaps argue maybe it's more the IRGC that's doing this. Uh, but setting that aside, what we see is an Iran that is increasingly aggressive, an Iran that's attacking its neighbors, Pakistan now, an Iran that is attacking civilians in Iraqi Kurdistan, killing people, civilians, business people, prominent business people, claiming they're Israeli spies. And, you know, it, for the first time, we really are seeing pushback from Iraqi Kurdish leaders, for example, who remained quite silent for some time in the face of all those attacks, um, pushing back. Uh, and in this most recent uh, case, uh, Nitravan Barzani was one of the first to come out and condemn the killing of the Americans in Jordan. You saw Masrur Barzani follow suit, and you even saw the SDF commander-in-chief, Muslim Kobani, condemning the Iranians. So the Iranians aren't really making themselves any friends here. And at the same time, uh, one of the countries that is very important but has kind of remained neutral, Turkey, uh, is mending its relationship with the United States. So... Given all of that, how would you assess uh, Iran's current sort of stance, which seems almost like it's cornered? Iran is in a very difficult situation in the region uh, for different reasons. Uh, we spoke about Iran's miscalculation last time I was on your podcast, so I don't want to repeat myself on that. But as you mentioned, uh, the incidents of Iran attacking Pakistan and, and Erbil, I mean, uh, interestingly, and I would say unfortunately from a humanitarian perspective, uh, especially in the case of Arbil, which uh, resulted in the killing of civilians, a very sad uh, kind of episode. Uh, so interestingly, uh, these actually are affirmations of uh, the argument that Iran doesn't want to enter into a war with the United States. You know, those uh, uh, moves basically was 
I mean, in Iran's own assessment, was meant to be uh, some sort of reactions to everything that was happening against Iranian interests in the region uh, from the uh, resumed Israeli uh, campaign of targeted assassinations that, uh, you know, until that date uh, had resulted in the killing of Razi Mousavi, uh, the top uh, IRGC commander in Syria, and then also the Kerman attack and, uh, you know, the uh, kind of... Uh, rebels attacks against uh, the uh, border guards in uh, Iran's eastern border. So Iran wanted to show a, a very big and uh, kind of uh, strong in their own sense uh, response to all this, but basically symbolic and in a way that it wouldn't, uh, you know, drag the country into war. So if you look at the target in Erbil, for example, they targeted a civilian's ho uh, house, which happened to be close, not so far from the uh, American consulate, uh, without, uh, you know, uh, targeting any American asset or, or personnel there. So, you know, this is the sort of uh, uh, kind of uh, predicament that Iran uh, is uh, right now. On one side, it feels the pressure, not only in the sense of the uh, events happening in the region, but also in the sense that, you know, even its own support uh, base in the country, you know, the uh, most hardline part of the society, uh, you know, has has been showing uh, a kind of, uh, how to say, uh, unhappiness, let's say, uh, with uh, Iran's lack of a strong response or a firm response to uh, the events in the region. And also, uh, Iran has been in a situation uh, where all of its allies in this so-called axis of resistance have been, has been escalating, have been escalating against the United States, and Iran was just sitting uh, watching this. So Iran had to act, but keeping the balance between doing something and doing it in a way that would not, uh, you know, put you in a war is a very, very difficult thing that is getting more and more difficult. I would say. Well, I mean, if this current pattern of escalation persists, it's very hard to imagine that we won't have some kind of kinetic confrontation between the United States and Iran at some point. And let's hope that can be avoided, because that's not going to make things better necessarily either. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really, really scary um, time, isn't it? Thank you so much, Hamid yeah. for joining us today and keep up the fantastic work. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be uh, on your podcast and be cooperating with our monitor. Thank you. Welcome to On the Middle East, Inna. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So you are one of the biggest experts on these Shia militias in Iraq. And the big question that's out there right now after the deaths of these three U.S. servicemen in Jordan is whether these militias who are being held responsible and indeed claimed responsibility for these killings, whether they were acting on their own or whether they were acting under orders from Tehran? I think the most important aspects when discussing um, the escalation is its origin, whether it emanates directly from Iranian orders or from Iran's regional allies. The increased lethality in the recent attacks suggests a bold shift 
by Iran's transnational allies. And also, as you're asking me about their autonomy, operating under the label of the Islamic resistance in Iraq, these actors also strategically shield formal entities that are within the umbrella of the popular mobilization forces known in Arabic as Hashta Shabi. And this also grants Iran plausible deniability, right? We remember also the last speeches of Hassan Nasrallah, but you also see it in the talking points of a lot of resistance veterans. Like for example, Abu Allah al-Walai has been constantly repeating that whatever the Islamic resistance in Iraq is doing in terms of domestic operations, in terms of transnational engagement, is still emanating from their interests and from their interpretation of the mandate to practice responsibility to resist in whatever context. So this allows them, in my opinion, to test the waters without direct accountability and still maintaining this narrative that Iran merely provides training guidance, even cheering, rather than explicit orders to proxies. Because of their domestic audiences and also because of their domestic interests, they do not want to be perceived as Iranian proxies. They still want to preserve this identity as Iraqi patriots. And a lot of them, this is really based on um, my personal interviews with resistance commanders, believe that whatever Iran is doing on the transnational front is also in the best interest of Iraq as a sovereign country. Well, that's very interesting because is it really in the interest of Iraq to chase out U.S. forces when we know that the minute U.S. forces leave, the Islamic State will be back? to fill that vacuum, perhaps not as quickly as they did the last time round, but the Islamic State is still alive and kicking. So should that not be a concern, um, especially for Iran itself, which was just attacked recently um, by the Islamic State, losing hundreds of its citizens in that attack? That's a crucial point here, and um, specifically the timing is very important because all of this is taking place after a first round of negotiations between Sudanese government and the U.S. have been taken place to discuss the future of the U.S.-led global coalition to fight ISIS. So the interest of Sudanese administration lies, of course, in securing credits for a U.S. withdrawal to be, of course, like the one Iraqi prime minister who has sought through the leaving or the withdrawing of U.S. forces um, that still appears diplomatically graceful while maintaining security cooperation with the U.S., which, as you pointed out, is a vital interest for Iraq's security. So on the one hand, as I mentioned, we have like this legacy of overseeing a withdrawal, which aligns with Sudanese objectives, seeking ongoing security assistance and also bilateral cooperation agreements with countries, members of the global coalition to fight ISIS. But also I would, I would say that it would be naive to think that ISIS lurking in the shadows would not be keen to exploit 
any security gaps, potentially leading to a breakdown in security and counterterrorism efforts and also intelligence cooperation in the region. And this makes the balancing act of Sudanese administration a very difficult one. Well, at the same time, um, you know, where would these U.S. troops be directing this cooperation that they're seeking from? Would it be from Iraqi territory still? I mean, how would that even work? The most important point here is to have an Iraqi government who can guarantee the security of uh, all the personnel, of all the commission staff of this global coalition during the whole transition period. And we also have to take into consideration that the whole camp of Iran-aligned actors in Iraq is not as homogeneous as it has been sometimes referred in the media, right? As like having um, almost unanimously uh, operating group of Iran-sponsored um, militias. Some of them have um, bigger stakes in the current administration. Some of them are more established and also like more formally embedded within Iraq's bureaucracy. And others like um, uh, al movement or Qataibse Eid al-Shahada, they're of course bolder in their statements. Um, they would tend to um, put in practice much bolder moves to test the waters without necessarily jeopardizing the presence of their forces within the popular mobilization forces. And um, this makes it, of course, very difficult for the U.S. to decide the most adequate response and, of course, like to win time in the process. Um, it would mean really um, reacting uh, in a way, drawing red lines, but without necessarily alienating allies that they might have within the current Iraqi government. That's an excellent point. Um, and of course, we mustn't forget about the Iraqi Kurds who are absolutely you know, desperate to have U.S. forces stay uh, inside the country. And one of the ideas that seems to be floating around is that while the United States would perhaps thin its presence in uh, areas controlled by the central government, they might, might shift the focus to the KRG from where they would then, uh, you know, do those anti-ISIS operations. But my understanding is, of course, that that's the last thing Iran uh, wants is more U.S. in the KRG because they find the KRG to be the most threatening part, the sort of Achilles heel, uh, because they they seem absolutely convinced, however much the KRG denies it, that, Iran, uh, that Israel is sort of using that as a sort of a launching pad to destabilize uh, Iran. So it's a very complex situation. Um, it's so, it's a guess... very complex situation. And just to add on this point, um, because you brought already excellent arguments, but then additionally, we have the U.S. elections and we have a lot of domestic pressure in the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis the Biden administration to prove that it can indeed protect the lives of U.S. military personnel. And uh, in view of Iran's presence in the KRG, this is also a critical question. 
whether they have enough ability to draw and maintain these red lines um, in the north of Iraq. Where do the Sunnis come into play here? And being that we also know that this the, the, the original Iraqi resistance to the U.S. came really from the Sunnis, right? I mean, having come back also recently from field work in Sunni majority provinces, it's very difficult to also speak of the Sunni components um, as uh, of like one acting and operating and like speaking with a unified voice, right? Um, what Iran has uh, been exploiting were exactly tensions, rivalries, even like not within just like one and the same Sunni community, but like even within one and the same tribe. Um, just to bring some background information here, um, within the so-called popular mobilization forces, you have a Sunni component, but you also have like Sunni fighters who have been drawn like to participate in some of the more established Shia majority brigades. All of this like fragmentation yeah. has uh, made it quite challenging like for the Sunni component like to decide on, on and to agree on one path, not to mention like the very, um, the psychological effect of taking or arguing any position in favor of the U.S. against the background of the ongoing of the ongoing war in Gaza, and of the civilian casualties on the Palestinian side. My final question is: Can you just explain to us why um, this Kataib al-Hizbullah in particular seems to be in the forefront of all these attacks against the United States? Why are they? special, if that's the right word. The type Hezbollah, um, even though as a lot of the other factions are ideologically aligned with Iran, are one of the um, strongest uh, factions within the so-called like popular mobilization forces cosmology. Um, they have been operating for a long time uh, behind the shadows and they have established um, um, an, an intimidating repressive apparatus. Um, Kataib Hezbollah members should not just be perceived as a military component. They have uh, outrage like within the civil society. They have presence also in other um uh, security agencies of the Iraqi state in other administrative bodies. Um, so they are a massive and very serious actor uh, within the Iraqi political landscape. Therefore, also in terms of their ideological um, makeup, they're very different like from the Sadris trend. Um, in other papers, I have argued that there have been more um, ideological uh, differences between Asaib al-Haq as a faction that has originated from within the Sadri strand and Qatab Hezbollah, which has been more classically referred to as an Iranian-aligned group, as an Iranian proxy. Um, so we have to keep all of these nuances uh, in mind. And then again, like when a major geopolitical issue, a major transnational issue like um, the Palestinian cause 
is in the center of the public debates, uh, you would necessarily see a rally around the resistance flag effect. So it would be very difficult, despite, of course, uh, evident tensions, rivalries, disagreements between all of these different actors to contradict each other, that it is not important to resist or to engage in resistance against what is happening um, on, the, uh, on the Palestinian front. Uh, as I was mentioning uh, to Hamid Reza in my conversation with him, though, it seems rather convenient, though, this October 7th, doesn't it? Because after all, these attacks on U.S. forces predate October 7th, and we all know that the ultimate goal is to drive out the United States in a I, I said this was going to be my final, my previous question was the final one, but here's the final one. Do you think that the United States can remain in Iraq and Syria, given this sustained campaign, which shows no sign of abating? Well, it very much depends uh, in which form and in which function. I would rather say like form should follow function. Therefore, I regard the ongoing talks with the Iraqi government as extremely important. Um, this process ideally like should uh, not be derailed um, by the last attacks. There is, of course, um, a strong uh, expectation vis-a-vis -vis the Sudani government to um to to exert pressure on armed actors especially like acting and operating from Iraqi territory um but i think like once there is a broader consensus on what the global coalition has achieved what remains to be achieved what are the tasks like what uh what is the amount of the current threat being posed by ISIS and by other terrorist elements then it would be easier for any Iraqi administration um, to impose a unified position and like to keep such rogue actors in place. Because we have, I just want to point uh, one more aspect out. Uh, even during like the last um, public funerals uh, after a U.S. attack, Qatar uh, Hezbollah strongholds, you would see like that the coffin had been dressed up with the flag of the Hashtashabi. So a lot of these actors, whenever being attacked by the US, they want to fall onto their state actor identity. They want to make it that any attack against them is an attack against Iraqi sovereignty. Um, so I think this is very important point. Like the US has to find a way like to, um, guarantee the security of its staff without engaging in operations that can be framed by these rock actors as attacks on Iraqi sovereignty in order not to jeopardize the current negotiations about the future of the global coalition in Iraq. But that seems almost impossible because, I mean, these uh, groups are attacking U.S. forces and now killing them. So how can the United States not respond, if not by force, because the United States has to maintain its credibility, it has to maintain deterrence, 
So it's just a, a vicious cycle, isn't it? Because it's a vicious cycle and it's a cycle that can only be broken um, through more intensified cooperation with the Iraqi authorities, especially like with um, members of the current administration um, who would have like direct channels on how to engage like with such rogue elements. Well, we're all waiting with bated breath to see what exactly the U.S. response that Biden vowed would happen will be, what form it will take. Um, let's hope that things don't get even more violent, but unfortunately, that's the trend. Thank you so very much, Ina, and I'm sorry I kept you on for so long. I know you have a lot of other things to do, but I could go on forever talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I look forward to our next conversation. And this brings us to the end of this week's programme. I hope you found it informative and that you will keep tuning in to On the Middle East. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>